Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. I'm Sarah, and I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy in these uncertain times. Um, I don't really have a lot to say this week. I could probably uh, ramble about nothing for probably five minutes, but that's not why you're here. So (laughs) we are going to just jump right into this episode. Um, This is a long, long chapter. It took me a couple reads. I had to read this chapter a couple times just to kind of get my head on straight about it. Uh, So bear with me. To recap, last week in Chapter 47, Fran, Stu, Glenn, and Harold met up with some new survivors after a rather bloody shootout, notably Dana Jurgens and Susan Stern. Fran and Stu finally confessed their feelings for one another, and Harold stole Fran's diary in the dead of night, read it, returned it, and then started a journal of his own. The group has realized that Mother Abigail has already left Nebraska, and they decide to head for Colorado instead. This week, in Chapter 48, we are back with Trash Can Man, a.k.a. Donald Merwin Elbert. As with previous chapters, King shifts between the last legs of Trash's journey into Vegas and his journey after leaving Gary, Indiana. Um, I wonder what you guys think of this. Do you enjoy it when King bounces around the timeline in these chapters? Uh, I think the downside of this would be that you find out what has already happened in the past or to one of the characters before we actually read about it. On the other hand, this might whet one's appetite to find out exactly what happened and why and makes you want to keep pushing forward and reading. Personally, I kind of like the back and forth as long as I understand that it's back and forth. (laughs) I've read books that jump around in the timeline and don't tell you. And it takes a few paragraphs of confusion to finally understand uh, where you are in the time, um, past or present. But King does a pretty good job uh, keeping you on task here, keeping you on course. And whereas before I kind of did the chapter chronologically to avoid confusion, I'm going to not do that with chapter 48. I'm just going to try to summarize as he's written it. Um, Hopefully that won't be too crazy. Um, It took me a while to get through this one and figure out the best way uh, to talk about it. And actually, <clears throat> despite this chapter being fairly long, and quite a bit happens, a lot of it is just action. It's, it's Trash's journey, um, some of his internal thoughts. Um, so I don't think that it'll be too bad, but hang in there with me. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get through this and it'll be just fine. So when we catch up with Trash again, he is finally within sight of Las Vegas, or rather what he's calling Cibola. And I really hope I said that right. I didn't want to call it Cibola. Um, that's how it's spelled because it just sounds too much like Ebola <laughs> to me. <laughs> so I've, I think that it's pronounced Cibola. And Cibola is the fabled city, the seven in one. And in 16th century myths, Cibola was the seven cities of gold. 
and Trash is convinced that this is where he's meant to be. This is where he's headed. And Trash is not in a good way, physically or mentally. The wrist that he broke uh, when blowing up the cheery oil tanks never really healed right. So the bones in his hands have shifted and pulled up, making his hand into something of a claw. His left arm is a healing mass of burned tissue from elbow to shoulder, and his face is sunburned and peeling. He is scruffy bearded, covered with scabs. He is wearing a faded blue JCPenney work shirt and a dirty pair of corduroy pants. He has on a pair of Keds and no socks. Walking through the desert, you can only imagine how comfortable that is. So with Vegas in the distance, or Cibola, as Trash considers it, he is ecstatic. He still has quite a ways to go, and in the hot sun of the desert, this is not going to be an easy task for him, especially considering he pretty much just drank the last of his water. So Trash is singing a song called Down to the Nightclub, sung by a group called Tower of Power, and this is where we get to hear Trash say his trademark, bumpty bumpty bump. Trash imagines he'll be drinking from the fountains of gold in Cibola. And now there was nothing left of Donald Merwin Albert. Whatever was left of that man had been cremated with the oil tanks in Gary, Indiana. Over nine dozen of them he had set fire to, just in time for July 4th. They had gone up like a string of firecrackers, and that is where he had burned his arm. And in the wake of that conflagration, only the trash can man had been left. His left arm, a cracked and boiling stew, a fire inside his body that was never going to go out, at least not until his body was so much blackened charcoal. Trash worries for a moment that maybe Cibola was a mirage and he had just drunk the last of his water. If that's true, he would be dead soon enough and the buzzards in the desert would dine on him. But he can't believe that. He has to keep pushing forward. Trash decides he'll walk after the sun sets, and when he reached Cibola, he would plunge headfirst into the first fountain he came to, and then he would find him, the man who had brought Trash across the plains and the mountains and into the desert. He who is the dark man, the hard case. He waited for Trash Can Man and Cibola, and his were the armies of the night. His were the white-faced riders of the dead who would sweep out of the west and into the very face of the rising sun. They would come raving and grinning and stinking of sweat and gunpowder. There would be shrieks, and Trash Can cared very little for the shrieks. There would be rape and subjugation, things about which he cared even less. There would be murder, which was immaterial, and there would be a great burning. The dark man had told Trash in his dreams I will set you high in my artillery. You are the man I want. The first dream came to Trash Can Man in Gary, Indiana, over a month ago, after the burn on his arm while he had been setting up crude timing devices on the oil tanks. One of the devices had gone off while he was working, shooting fire up his left arm. Trash had felt sure he would die. No one could be burned as badly as he was and live. It had been so bad that Trash had considered killing himself. The oil tanks had begun to go off then, and the fire pleased him, delighted him, fulfilled him, and thoughts of suicide and the wounded arm were forgotten. In this dream, the dark man came in his hooded robe, his face invisible. It was a man Trash felt like he knew. He knew this dark man all right. His was the face you could never quite see. His the hands which dealt all spades from a dead deck. His the eyes beyond the flames. 
his the grin from beyond the grave of the world. I really want to just take a brief moment to appreciate that bit of writing. And that's not the first line I've come across in this this whole book that gave me chills. But King, as we all know, because we're fans of his, he has such a freaking magical way of describing something, of weaving words together in a way that you would never, ever dream of doing on your own. I'm having a difficult time just putting my thoughts together and expressing how impressive his writing is. But that just that particular line, um, just uh, the first time I read it, it was just like, God damn it. <laughs> like, why can't I write like that? Um, God, it's so good. Anyway, so we'll, let's get back to this. <laughs> so Trash tells the dark man that he will do whatever he wants. My life for you. And that is where um, the dark man tells him that he will set. I will set you high in my artillery. You are the man that I want. Then he saw an army of 10,000 raggle-taggle cast-off men and women driving east, driving across the desert and into the mountains, a rough beast of an army whose time had come round at last. They loaded down trucks and jeeps and wagoneers and campers and tanks. Each man and woman wore a dark stone around his or her neck, and deep in some of those stones was a red shape that it might have been an eye or might have been a key. And riding in their van atop a giant tanker with pillow tires, he saw himself and knew that the truck was filled with jellied napalm. And behind him, in column, were trucks loaded with pressure bombs and teller mines and plastic explosive, flamethrowers and flares and heat-seeking missiles, grenades and machine guns and rocket launchers. The dance of death was about to begin, and already the strings of the fiddles and guitars were smoking and the stench of brimstone and cordite filled the air. The dark man lifted his arms again, and when he dropped them, everything was cold and silent. The fire's gone, even the ashes cold. And for just a moment, he was only Donald Merwin Elbert again, small and afraid and confused. For just that moment, he suspected he was just another pawn in the dark man's huge chess game that he had been deceived. Then he saw the dark man's face was no longer entirely hidden. Two dark red coals burned in the sucken pits where his eyes should have been and illuminated a nose as narrow as a blade. The dark man tells Trash to come west to his city where all will become clear. Trash wakes with a purpose then and he started west. His dreams of burning Chicago to the ground were gone. He broke into a doctor's office to get some morphine for his arm and pushed on to the city that is promised. The dark man came to him in his dreams that night and confirmed, with a giggle, that the city was indeed Cibola. Now, so close to Vegas, Trash pulls some mummified bodies from a Mercedes-Benz. He uses the clothes from the dead couple's suitcases to drape over the windows, and then climbs into the car to sleep, a cool, dim cave. Miles to the west, Vegas gleams in the light of the summer sun. On July 4th, when Larry found Rita had overdosed in her sleep, Trash had been on a bike, singing the lyrics to Down to the Nightclub under his breath. On July 8th, when Nick and Tom saw the grazing buffalo in Kansas, Trash was in Iowa. On the 14th of July, when Larry was in New Hampshire, asleep near the big white house being watched by Nadine and Joe, Trash had crossed into Nebraska. 
and it's in Nebraska that Trash feels there's something wrong. The dark man had come to Trash every night in his dreams, but when he crossed into Nebraska, the dark man came no more. In Nebraska, Trash begins to dream about an old black woman. The dream to Trash is a nightmare, despite there not being any frightening images in the dream. All he knows is he's in some corn and he wants to be taken away from all of it. Mother Abigail sees him somewhere in the corn and cries out, There's weasels in the corn! And Trash feels the change himself. He physically turns into a weasel and wakes up screaming. To show you how eager he is to get out of Nebraska, he covers 400 miles in three days on his bike. For Mother Abigail's part, on July 15th, after Trash passes through uh, north of Hemingford home, she wakes with a terrible chill and a feeling that was both fear and pity, but for whom or what she didn't know. And on July 18th, Trash meets the kid. Waking up at twilight in his Mercedes Benz, Trash is so close to dehydration, and he's weak. He knows he needs to get to Sabala before sunrise or he'll die. And in sight of his goal, no less. Surely the dark man couldn't be that cruel. He's about 30 miles away from Vegas, and he keeps thinking about the kid. By rights, the kid should have been with him now. They should be driving into Sibala together, with the straight pipes of the kid's deuce coupe blatting back echoes from the desert. But the kid had proved unworthy, and Trash had been sent on alone into the wilderness. He's getting closer to Vegas now, and he is sure that he'll make it. On July 18th, the kid arrived in a 1932 Ford Deuce Coupe. The car is quite impressive, a show car that someone had put a lot of love and work into. It stops beside Trash Can Man on his bike, and the kid exits. So King gives us a lot of detail about the kid's appearance. Bear with me here. He stood about 5 feet 3 inches. His hair was piled and swirled and pomaded and brilliantined. The hair alone gave him another 3 inches of height. The swirls all met above his collar. And what was not just a duck's ass but the avatar of all the duck's ass hairdos ever affected by the punks and hoods of the world. He was wearing black boots with pointed toes. The sides were elasticized. The heels, which gave the kid another three inches, bringing him up to a respectable 5'9 total, were stacked Cubans. His pegged and faded jeans were tight enough to read the dates of the coins in his pockets. They limbed each nifty little buttock into a kind of blue sculpture and made his crotch look like he'd maybe stuffed a chemoist bag full of spalding golf balls in there. I shouldn't laugh, but <laughs> saying it out loud. Uh, I'm such a child. Um, <laughs> to continue, he wore a western-style silk shirt of an off-burgundy color. It was decorated with yellow trim and imitation sapphire buttons. The cufflinks looked like polished bone, and Trash later found out that that's just what they were. The kid had two sets, one made from a pair of human molars, the other from the incisors of a Doberman pincher. Over this wonder of a shirt, in spite of the heat of the day, he wore a black leather motorcycle jacket with an eagle on the back. It was crisscrossed with zippers, the teeth glimmering like diamonds. From the shoulder flaps and waist belt, three rabbit's feet dangled. One was white, one was brown, one bright St. Patty's Day green. This jacket, even more wonderful than the shirt, creaked smugly with rich oil. Above the eagle, this time written in white silk thread, 
were the words, the kid. The face now, looking up at the trash can man from between the high pile of gleaming hair and the upturned collar of the gleaming motorcycle jacket, was tiny and pallid. A doll's face with heavy but flawlessly sculpted pouting lips, dead gray eyes, a wide forehead without a mark or a seam, and strange full cheeks. He looked like baby Elvis. Two gun belts were crisscrossed on his flat belly, and a giant forty-five leaned out of each of the sagging holsters on his hips. That was a lot of information for one character. I think we have a better uh, view, a better image of the kid than we do most of the characters <laughs> that have been in this book a heck of a lot longer than he has. And Trashy says the right thing when the kid approaches and greets him. He says, I like your car. And then they're off. The kid drives like a lunatic, and Trash is sure he's going to die in the car, but the kid seems to know how to handle the deuce coupe. The kid has a lot of his own trademark sayings. You believe that, Happy Crappy? Which we've seen Happy Crappy in a couple of other King's works. And you don't tell me, I tell you. The kid is from Shreveport, Louisiana, and the car that they're driving won every major car show award in the South. He's quite proud of it. Trash explains who he is and why they call him Trash Can Man. The kid likes that Trash sounds crazy because he's crazy too and admits it. The kid also likes Coors beer. He would piss Coors if he could. The kid is immediately someone to find off-putting. The way he talks is ridiculous. Someone trying to come across as tough and intimidating, and maybe he is, but mostly he just he's just crazy. He's not Looney Tunes crazy, but... I think he's crazy enough that even Trash is scared of him. And it's not like Trash is completely stable either. On the topic of the dark man, quote, He don't scare me, the kid said, as if the former topic of conversation had never lapsed. Fuck no. He's a hard baby, but the kid has handled hard babies before. I shut him up and then I shut him down. Just like the boss says. You believe that, happy crappy? Trash reluctantly agrees, but he is definitely troubled. In the present time, it is the morning of August 5th. Trash finally reaches Cibola, Las Vegas, and the strip is jammed with dead cars and dead people. He saw a hundred honky-tonk nightclubs. There were signs that read, Liberal Slots, signs that said, Bluebell Wedding Chapel and 60-second wedding, but it'll last a lifetime. He saw a silver ghost Rolls Royce halfway through a plate glass window of an adult bookstore. He saw a naked woman hanging upside down from a lamppost. He saw two pages of the Las Vegas sun go rifling by. The headline that revealed itself over and over as the paper flapped and turned was Play Grows Worse, Washington Mute. He saw a gigantic billboard which said Neil Diamond, the Americana Hotel, June 15th through August 30th. Someone had scrawled the words, Die Las Vegas for your sins, across the show window of a jewelry store seeming to specialize in nothing but wedding and engagement rings. He saw an overturned grand piano lying in the street like a large dead wooden horse. His eyes were full of these wonders. As he walked on, he began to see other signs. They're neon dead this midsummer for the first time in years. Flamingo, the mint, dune, Sahara, glass slipper imperial. But where were the people? Where was the water? Trash continues to move down the street, half dozing. He trips and falls and bloodies his nose. But as he gets up, he sees the MGM Grand. 
And there, in the entranceway, is a fountain. A fountain that is working. Trash does exactly what he wants. He jumps into the fountain, drinking a lot of it, throwing it up, and then drinking again, until he feels refreshed. And then he enters the hotel that is rather empty, but for Lloyd Henry, who is watching him from deep in the shadows. Trash climbs onto a casino table and falls asleep. Soon, about six men are surrounding him, not sure what to do, but Lloyd says to them to let him sleep. Flag wants him. On July 18th, the same day that Trash met the kid, they stay in a motel that night in Golden, Colorado, in connecting rooms. The kid leaves for a while and returns with a shopping cart full of Coors beer. Priorities. <laughs> it's a rather tense night. The kid drinks quite a bit, shoots the television, and then threatens Trash with his gun, telling him that he's going to kill Trash if he can't chug a beer without throwing up. Trash is able to do it, and he realizes he needs to leave, maybe slip away in the night while the kid sleeps. Not only is the kid bad news, but he's very blatant in his wanting to oust Flag, and Trash is not comfortable with that. So he sets his alarm for 5 a.m. and falls asleep. Unfortunately, the kid wakes up at some point, gets into Trash's bed where he assaults him with the barrel of his gun. Thankfully, the kid doesn't pull the trigger and soon falls asleep. This is when Trash decides it's time to leave. He's just going to wait five minutes and go, but he dozes and falls asleep again, dreaming of being outside on a dark road, and then he sees something coming towards him, and he hears a voice saying, In the mountains, I'll give you a sign. I'll show you my power. I'll show you what happens to those who would set themselves against me. Wait. Watch. There are red eyes in the dark. Red eyes that surround trash. Wolves. Great gray mountain wolves. Watch and wait, the voice says. So when Trash wakes up from his dream, it's daylight, and the kid is awake too. He tells Trash to get up and get ready. A lot of stuff is going to happen that day. And Trash agrees with a grin of his own. When he wakes up again on August 5th on the casino table, there's a young man waiting for him. He's wearing a stone around his neck, a small one. And Trash wonders if this is flag. But Lloyd introduces himself. He asks another man to get Trash something to eat. Whitney, or Whitey, is the cook. Trash feels so much gratitude here. Lloyd wants to shake his hand, and this is the first time anybody has ever wanted to do that. They have a room especially for him, and Lloyd explains that they're working on getting the whole place up and running again. They have a crew out at Boulder Dam trying to get the power back on. Another crew is working on water supply. Scout parties are out looking for other survivors. Trash is interested in the stone around Lloyd's neck. Apparently all the guys in charge have one. And he gave them the stones. He, the dark man. Maybe Trash will get one too, but who knows. Lloyd says Flag can do magic. He's seen it. And he'd hate to be the people against him. Trash knows all about that. He saw what happened to the kid. On the road, the kid had given up beer for a bottle of whiskey. He could just piss whiskey. He's drunk, and he's driving through the mountains going about 60, until they have to slow down because of the traffic on the mountain was getting worse. They came across a four-car pileup, and the kid is just enraged. 
How dare these people die on his road? He plans on going around the wreck, but Trash doesn't think there's any room. The kid thinks that there is, and he's going to do it. So Trash tries to get out of the car. He doesn't want to go over the side to their deaths, but the kid holds him there at gunpoint. And then the kid attempts to get to the edge of the mountain, but the right rear tire slips downward. Trash screams, and the kid floors the accelerator, willing the car to fly. Somehow, the car shifts forward back onto the road, and they clear the accident. All Trash can say is, good driving, champ, which is probably the only reason why the kid doesn't just shoot him right then and there for trying to leave the car. About 15 minutes later, they're stopped again, and there's just a congestion of stopped traffic and no way around it. It's going east and westbound. The kid screams again, telling the dead to get out of his way. He refuses to leave his car and tells Trash to walk ahead and find out where it ends. They can't backtrack because they'd never make it around that accident. So Trash starts to walk. It's about eight miles and he sees a sign that says the tunnel is closed. He comes across a lot of crashed vehicles, a lot of dead bodies, a lot of army as well. And he sees the Eisenhower Tunnel and is jammed as well. It's a bit like Larry who had to walk through the Lincoln Tunnel to freedom. He had been on an island, and he'd had no other choice. It was the only way out. Trash is not as brave as Larry, and he can't bring himself to keep going. He had been through so much, but he did not think he could handle the dark depths of this tunnel and the horrors that waited for him within. So Trash knows he has to go back. But maybe he could backtrack and find a road that went over the mountain instead of through it. But he'd have to bypass the kid. With any luck, the kid was passed out drunk, or maybe he left, or maybe he would just be dead. When Trash finally gets back, he can see the kid was slumped behind the steering wheel, his eyes closed, his mouth open, dead drunk. He tries to stay quiet and careful, though. He gets down on his hands and knees to get by the car, but the kid is awake and pointing his guns at Trash. He knows Trash was trying to sneak away. Trash explains that there's a tunnel ahead and it's jammed. Eight miles or so, but the kid is angry and thinks Trash is lying to him. He's going to shoot him, and Trash screams that he's not lying, and the kid doesn't care. He says he's going to take Trash's life, but first they're going to go back to the pileup on the mountain. Trash is going to push the van over the edge to make room for the car on the road. If he can do that in 15 minutes, he'll let Trash live. Trash isn't super smart, but he does not believe the kid at all. He still agrees to do it because he doesn't really have a choice. So back at the pileup, there's a VW microbus in the way. The kid opens the door to an Austin, where there's the corpse of a teenage girl inside. He sits on the seat and watches Trash. Trash tries to push the microbus, hurting his healing arm in the process. And then the kid hears something. Trash doesn't hear it at first, but then he hears the sound of something coming down the side of the mountain. A howl rises into the night. There are wolves approaching, eyes red, jaws gaping open, more than two dozen of them. The kid begins to fire at them with his pistols, taking out three, but then he runs out of ammunition. Trying to run is futile, because more are coming from the opposite direction. They're the wolves that Trash has dreamed about. The dark man was their master, as he was Trash's master. The wolves rush the kid, who manages to get into the Austin and shut the door. And then the wolves surround the Austin, waiting. 
Trash approaches one of the wolves, and the wolf licks his hand and sits. The kid is only able to stare out the window, his mouth agape. Trash flips him off with both fingers. He screams, Fuck you. You're shut down, do you hear me? Do you believe that, happy crappy? Shut down. Don't tell me. I'll tell you. In just those few words, you can just feel Trash's satisfaction at the kid's predicament. (laughs) The remaining wolves lead Trash away, leaving the kid in the car surrounded. And he won't last long. He'll starve, or he'll die of heat being in the car, or he'll try to run. In any case, the kid is a goner. And this is the kid's punishment for thinking he would be able to kick the dark man out of power. Trash is ecstatic. He's almost manic in his happiness. The wolves lead Trash back to the tunnel, and they lead him through it, despite how jammed it is and how dark. Their red eyes provide a sort of beacon for him. And when he gets through to the other side, the wolves disappear. And now it's up to Trash to get to Vegas the rest of the way. The beauty of religious mania is that it has the power to explain everything. Once God, or Satan, is accepted as the first cause of everything which happens in the mortal world, nothing is left to chance or change. Once such incantatory phrases as, we see now through a glass darkly, and mysterious are the ways he chooses his wonders to perform, are mastered, logic can be happily tossed out the window. Religious mania is one of the few infallible ways of responding to the world's vagaries because it totally eliminates pure accident. To the true religious maniac, it's all on purpose. On August 7th, Lloyd fetches trash from his room. He brings him downstairs to eat, and there he meets a group of men. Whitey, the cook, Ken DeMont, Hector Drogan, and a younger man named Ace High. They're all very accepting of trash, and he feels good and warm. This is so odd for him, such a foreign feeling that it almost feels like a disease. Trash thinks, these are a good group of people, and he's finally home. Trash begins to work with a group near Boulder Dam. It feels like everyone was in love with what they were doing as he was. But that's not entirely true. About a quarter past ten, they have to head back. Trash asks why, but he's not given an answer so he's feeling troubled again. Everyone is gathered around the fountain by the MGM Grand. Lloyd finds Trash in the crowd. He needs his help since he's been elected. He takes Trash to the fountain. Trash sees a wooden cross about 12 feet long. It's Hector Drogan, the man Trash had just met. He is brought out, and Trash realizes that they're going to nail him up. Lloyd draws out a fine gold chain with a black jet stone on it. It has a tiny red flaw in the center like Lloyd's. The truth was in Lloyd's eyes, too clear not to be recognized, and Trash Can Man knew he could never weep and grovel. Not before him, not before anybody, but especially not before him, and claim he hadn't understood. Take this and you take everything, Lloyd's eyes said. And what's a part of everything? Why, heck Drogan, of course. Heck, and the cement-lined hole in the ground the hole just big enough to take the butt end of Heck's cross tree. Trash studies the stone. His hand paused just before the outstretched fingers could touch the gold chain. This is my last chance, my last chance to be Donald Merwin Elbert. But another voice, one which spoke with greater authority, 
but with a certain gentleness, like a cool hand on a fevered brow, told him that the time of choices had long since passed. If he chose Donald Merwin Elbert, now he would die. He had sought the dark man of his own free will, if there is such a thing for the trash can men of the world, had accepted the dark man's favors. The dark man had saved him from dying at the hands of the kid. That the dark man might have sent the kid for just that purpose never crossed trash can man's mind. And surely that meant his life was now a debt he owed to the same dark man. The man, some of them here called the walking dude. His life, had he not himself offered it again and again? Trash takes the chain and puts it on. It lays against his skin like a tiny ball of ice, and he likes it. Lloyd tells Trash just to tell himself that he didn't know heck. It makes things easier. Hector Drogan is brought out naked and screaming. He swears he can clean up his act. He just needs help. But those he calls out to ignore him. He calls for Trash, asking him to tell them all to knock it off. He can get clean. But Trash looks away and says he doesn't know him. And that triggers a sense of relief. Another man named Winky begins to read as Hector is pushed against the cross. His execution is ordered by an act of crucifixion due to the crime of drug use. Drug use is not allowed in this society because it impairs the user's ability to contribute fully to the society of people. Drogan was found with free basing paraphernalia and a supply of cocaine. This communication ends with a solemn warning and greetings to the people of Las Vegas. Let this bill of true facts be nailed above the miscreant's head and let it be marked with the seal of the first citizen, Randall Flagg, by name. Hector is nailed to the cross, and the cross is lifted. The crowd remains for about an hour. There is disgust on many faces, a drowsy kind of excitement on others, but the common denominator is fear. But Trash wasn't frightened. Why should he be? He hadn't known the man at all. That night, Trash is brought to Flag by Lloyd. Flag arrived in Vegas again shortly after they had burned Drogan's body. No one ever sees him come and go, but they always know when he's gone and when he's back. Lloyd takes Trash to Flag's room and leaves him. Trash can see a form in the doorway with red eyes. Flag welcomes him, and Trash responds, My life for you. Flag agrees, but doesn't think it will come to that. He draws Trash into his room. The door closes, and a hot hand closes over Trash's icy one. He says, there's work for you in the desert, if you want it. Great work. Trash says anything, anything. Randall Flagg slipped an arm around his wasted shoulders. I'm going to set you to burn, he said. Come, let's have something to drink and talk about it. And in the end, that burning was very great. So, again, this is a pretty long chapter. I tried to uh, narrow down the most important parts to summarize. Um, obviously, if you guys are reading along with me, uh, you got most of the detail on your own. <laughs> it's been a while since we heard from Trash Can Man, and King more than makes up for it, giving us, um, what, 60 or so pages in one chapter. And he fits quite a bit into it as well, shifting between Trash's journey, the introduction, and the demise of the kid and then giving us a taste of Vegas under Flag's rule. When we left Trash, way back in Chapter 34, he had dreams of traveling through the country, 
and essentially burning it to the ground. Now his plans have changed thanks to the dark man reaching out to him through his dreams, promising a high place in his artillery. Trash immediately feels loyalty to Flag, gratitude promising my life for you. He puts his faith into Flag, even if a tiny bit of humanity in the shape of his name, Donald Merwin Elbert, surfaces every now and then. It's interesting that, to me that Trash never dreams of Mother Abigail, not until he's in Nebraska. But his dream of Mother Abigail is nothing like the dreams of her that our other characters have had. He feels wrong in this dream. And when Mother Abigail spots him in the corn, she yells that there are weasels in the corn. And we all know how she feels about weasels. Uh, Trash realizes that he's an actual weasel, at least until he wakes up. Given how we've been told that dreams of Mother Abigail have been comforting, like coming home, it was fun to see her from another perspective. Um, And she's a nightmare to Trash, where the Dark Man is a nightmare to Stu and Larry and Nick. She feels wrong to Trash. And I, I guess I have to assume that the other people who are in Vegas right now have all felt the same way if they've dreamt of Mother Ga- Abigail at all. Um, is it only triggered if those kind of people are in Nebraska? I'm not really sure. But it's interesting um, to see the differing viewpoint of Mother Abigail from, say, Stu to Trash Can Man. In the dream with the Dark Man, um, the first dream with Flag, he shows Trash Can Man what he has planned. An artillery is going to be on its way through the mountains, an army of grenades, of guns and bombs, of fire. It does not take a genius to realize where this army is headed, to Colorado. This is Flag's plan for Mother Abigail and her people. He wants Trash involved, obviously given... um, trashes uh uh his proclivity for fire (laughs) to say the least um even lloyd says you know he's seen flag do magic so he would hate to be the people against him and the people against him are mother abigail and her followers so trash of course is headed to vegas and we meet someone new this tiny little character named the kid he's only with trash for a day um, but this kid, the kid, uh, he's not a kid. He's a, he's a man, but the kid is a nut job. <laughs> Plain and simple. He's 5'3", high-heeled boots, huge hair, guns, a loud mouth attitude. And I'm going to say that he is overcompensating for something. <laughs> and the kid's arc, this is interesting because the kid's arc is not included in the original edition of The Stand. Um, when King wrote the uncut version, I guess didn't write it, but when he created the uncut version and put things back into the book that he had to take out initially, the kid, his arc was a part of that. Um, and I think when I was younger reading this, I feel like the kid was in the book so much more. I felt like he had such a bigger part, but I think that's just because the kid has such a big personality. Um, he's so vivid. He's so a real in a ridiculous way. Um, So yeah, this is a good showcase uh, for Trash's character too. Just like Lloyd Henry being a follower rather than a leader, uh, Trash is clearly the same way. He is very meek in a way, and he's just trying to survive to get to Vegas to his master. 
the kid has this ridiculous car. Okay, I'm sure a 1932 Ford Coupe is probably pretty cool. I've looked at pictures of them online. Um, <laughs> I don't know how practical it is for post-apocalyptic driving, <laughs> but <laughs> it's fine. Um, he has this car, and he has a strong personality, uh, so Trash settles in with him. Although, I feel like he regrets it almost immediately, uh, just given the way the kid drives. He also has guns, so it's difficult for Trash to do anything but be agreeable and think about sneaking away as soon as he can. The kid is just an appalling person. The way he talks to Trash, the way he talks in general, the fact that he's constantly threatening Trash's life with his pistols, and ugh, he even sexually assaults Trash with his gun. Um, this guy is like the four men who held Susan, Dana, and the other women captive, but the kid does not strike me as the kind of guy who could get along with any of those men. Um, he wants subservience. He doesn't want to answer to anybody. He believes he can go to Vegas, watch things for a little while, get the lay of the land, and then take out flag and rule over Vegas himself. And are you kidding me? The kid acts tough, but I mean, he's obviously pretty stupid because if Flag can talk to these people, transmit these messages in his mind, what makes the kid think that he's going to be able to overcome that? The balls on this guy, they're probably pretty small too. So I don't even know how it's possible to feel sorry for Trash Can Man, but you kind of do. I mean, don't you? Being um, that, you know, his life has not been the easiest and I'm not at all dismissing anything or saying anything he's done has been okay. It hasn't. But being with the kid is that had to have been a traumatic experience. I mean, just imagine yourself being with somebody who's quite clearly mentally unstable, threatening you constantly with a gun. Um, and he, it's like, you can't leave. You can't get away. However, Randall flag is looking out for trash can man. And even when trash feels like he has the opportunity to sneak away, Flag tells him not to, to wait and watch because Trash will see what happens to those who might plot against him. And honestly, by the time the wolves start to zero in on the kid, I'm so ready for it. Like I felt so much satisfaction <laughs> knowing that he was going to be stuck in that car um, and even listening or I guess not listening, but reading Trash being able to scream uh, the kid's words back at him and flip him the double bird. That's just, that was really satisfying for me. So we don't actually see the kid die, but we know that it's inevitable. The wolves are waiting and they're not going to leave. These are not normal wolves. These are flags wolves. So the kid will either starve to death, die of heat stroke, or make a run for it. Um, and I don't, I, I doubt that the kid can outrun those wolves. The rest of the wolves leave trash through the Eisenhower Tunnel to the other side and then they disappear so yeah trash is able to get to vegas on his own we get a pretty good look at how vegas works now flag has everybody contributing to the city getting the power back on cooking getting things cleaned up they have people out scouting for other survivors um on the surface it looks like hey these people have it under control they're getting shit done Trash has work to do, too, and he finds no one is bothering him or bossing him around or laughing at him. He's finding this place um, that has people who love what they're doing, people he can get along with. To him, this is his home now. 
Um, everybody, everyone seems to be in harmony. Almost. On the flip side of that, everybody is called back to the city and is there they have to witness an actual crucifixion. Hector Drogon, um, Hector Drogon, who was apparently using drugs. The punishment for drug use is crucifixion, which is something Stu told Fran he had dreamed about, that the dark man out west was crucifying people. She had hoped it was just a dream, but here we see that it's not. Lloyd advises Trash to just say he doesn't know Hector. It's easier that way when you deny any connection, and Trash finds that to be true. It's interesting that Flag's base is in Las Vegas, the city of sin, and yet to sin in Las Vegas is punishable by death, or at least in terms of drug use, because it alters uh, the person's ability to help and contribute to this new society. So what other rules does Flag have? I mean, death alone is harsh, but the means in which he does it is really brutal, and it projects just how evil Flag really is. That, and he makes sure everybody watches. This is their warning. This is what happens if you go against Flag in his rules. Finally, we see Flag again at the very end of this chapter, promising trash great work in the desert. He promises a great burning. What kind of burning? <laughs> Obviously, given the vision that uh, the dark man has shown Trash uh, with the caravan of firepower heading to the mountains, this doesn't bode well for the Colorado kids. Do you see what I did there? Trash feels like a character who is still somewhere between good and bad, obviously leaning more towards, you know, he's loyal to Flag and that says enough, just like Lloyd. I don't really know that he's evil. He's not Stu, but he's not Lloyd or the kid. He has moments of doubt, but ultimately he does worship Flag. So what is he willing to do for him? He said it many times in this chapter, my life for you. He will die for Flag. Trash is not somebody who really has a choice anymore anyway. This is his path. He chose it, and he's going to jump headfirst into it. So what did you guys think of this chapter? What do you think of Trash Can Man? Do you think that we've seen the last of the kid? Do you think he makes it out alive? It'll take a while. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see and find out. Next week, however, we're back with Larry and Lucy and Nadine, and they've also picked up a few new survivors of their own that we're going to get to meet, including Judge Ferris, who I'm very excited about. So that's it, you guys, for this episode of The Circle Opens. I was trying really hard to keep this under an hour, Given how long this chapter was, I kind of made it. I hope that you guys enjoyed this um, chapter as much as I did. Uh, if you are enjoying this podcast, you can leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on social media at The Circle Opens. Or you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. I just want to thank everybody who's listening, who's continued to listen. Either if you're a new listener or you've been here from the beginning um, you guys are awesome. Thank you for giving me something to look forward to every week, especially these days when things are really hard. And I hope that you are all doing well. Um, I appreciate every single one of my listeners. And that's it for this episode. M-O-O-N. That spells. See you next week. <laughs>